0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode
1: 78. A lot of the banks, of course, are more mature in their sanctions compliance efforts any bank
2: of any size can improve what they're currently doing.
0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks. My name is Pesh Patel, Editor at Trade Finance Global. Today, we're talking about sanctions compliance programs in the maritime industry. For financial institutions, there's always been a bit of a grey area for dealing with implementing financial sanctions based on shipping activity. OFAC, the US Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, and OFSI, the UK Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, have issued a number of recommendations for the banking and insurance sector in the last year or so. Due diligence recommendations have been anything from identifying commodity and trade corridors where ship-to-ship transfers take place, to tracking the use of AIS, automatic identification system technology. So how can we monitor risky transactions, real monitoring of vessels, and prevent illicit transfer of goods in high-risk locations? What is the role of FIs based on recent guidance? IHS Markit, the Association of Certified Sanctions Specialists and the Institute of International Banking Law and Practice recently published a white paper on sanctions advisories for the maritime industry, speaking to a number of banks and FIs about the recently issued OFAC and OFSI guidance. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Saskia Reetbrook at ACSS and Michael Byrne at IABLP. Saskia, Michael, welcome to Trade Finance Talks.
1: Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you for having us. Looking forward to a great session. Thank you. So to start off with, in no more than 30 seconds or so, I'm going to ask you, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? Saskia, over to you.
1: My name is Saskia Rietbroek. I'm the Executive Director of the Association of Certified Sanction Specialists. I'm based in the Netherlands. ACSS is a global membership organization consisting of banks, but also maritime shipping companies, manufacturing companies, and we help them comply on economic sanctions, and trade controls. And we have members, uh, I think about 73 countries right now.
0: Thank you very much. And Michael, over to you. I'm Michael Byrne. I am the CEO of the Institute of International
2: Banking Law and Practice. We are a US-based corporation. I live just outside of Washington, DC. We've been in business for about 30 years and we work with the major and small global banks to help them understand trade and do trade better. Trade financing and how to make sure you have a good compliance program. We do conferences and publish books and so on. So probably many of your listeners have bumped into us at some point in
0: their careers. I'm sure they have. So Saskia to start off with, what are the key themes around sanctions and money laundering in the maritime industry right now?
1: There's many uh, many things that are going on right now with respect to sanctions. It's very important to realize that OFAC is not a bank regulator. So OFAC, the the agency within Treasury that administers the sanctions programs can impose hefty fines on not just banks but also other sectors. And I think the uh, um, what is important to realize for the maritime shipping companies is that they are as exposed to these penalties and fines as their banks are. You know, sometimes we hear from our members here at ACSS, when you talk to the smaller companies, the smaller shipping companies or other companies, they say, well, you know, we are not really on top of this topic and we just wait for our bank to catch it. Well, then it's too late. You want to be, you know, have your own program in place to mitigate the risk of these heft defined. An important trend is that OFAC is not just looking at the financial sector for compliance. It's taking a much broader approach that is important to realise when you're in the non-banking sector.
0: Thanks Saskia. And Michael, what are the main elements of a ship-to-ship or a trans-shipment operation and why are they susceptible to illicit transfer activity, especially in high-risk locations?
2: In many ways, it is the core focus of the OFAC and OFSI uh, paper that or guidance that paper is about. At the beginning, you know, we learned that one of the most important missing elements in this is what does all of this stuff really mean? And I think a lot of, uh, and we'll cover it later. A lot of the banks and the organizations we spoke with didn't necessarily know the specifics of what these are. Ship to ship transfers, at its most core level, is transferring. Goods or cargo, whether it's in a container or crude, you know, liquid crude or um, even um, bulk goods, you know, iron ore or so on, between two ships out in the water. And it's perfectly legal and that happens all the time. There's, in fact, many places where, you know, outside of Malta, for example, is the water is low enough and calm enough that it's an easy place to transfer goods. And you might often refer to that as transshipment, where you would go from a, a mega ocean going, you know, like the ever given before it was stuck in the Suez to a smaller regional sized boat that would bring goods from um, a major port to some of the smaller ports. All totally normal and all taken advantage of bad actors. The most important thing that they really want people to look out for is it can happen in places that isn't legal or shouldn't happen. Out at high sea to be put on a vessel owned maybe by uh, a sanctioned country, Iran or North Korea. And they might do a number of different things to hide it, turn off their AIS, which we'll cover later, and so on, just as a way to uh,
0: violate sanctions, which is, in many ways, just about making money. I hope that answers that first part of the question. Can you talk a little bit more about AIS and how bad actors could manipulate that to violate sanctions?
2: So AIS itself, you should read the paper to um, everybody listening to learn more about exactly how it works. But it's information broadcast from the ship and picked up by either land-based antennas or satellites that give a number of information, some of which is the vessel identification uh, number, whether it's the MMSI or the IMO number. It includes the actual exact location on Earth, including, you know, by latitude and longitude, the time, the direction it's heading, the course, its speed, its um, draft, the the depth it is in the water based on how much uh, goods it has. Sometimes gets a bad rep, but really, it's a really good system. You know, it's not like uh, you could just put an iPhone into a ship and have it work. I think we've all been on cruises and had no, you know, anything. It's not so simple. But what it broadcasts is really quite useful in a lot of ways. The easiest way it is manipulated is you just turn it off. Now, it's not a switch. It's not like a light switch that you can just turn on and off whenever you want. It's housed at the top of a vessel and somebody's got to go up in there and it takes time to shut down and crank up uh, and so on. But if you are uh, good at violating sanctions, you know all this and you know when to turn it off, which is usually right when you're away from the land-based antennas because they provide almost instant feedback, whereas the satellites can take a few days for somebody to be able to actually use the data. It's manipulated by just turning it off, making your sanctioned run, if you will, and then turning it back on and claiming
0: you have no idea what happened. You've been sitting there the whole time. How can data transmitted by AIS be manipulated? Is that possible? It isn't something that I have uh, certainly ever
2: done. And I can't tell you exactly how they do it. Also, we don't want more people trying to do it, but it is certainly possible to spoof MMSI numbers. Often you can change the flag that your vessel is carried under. A lot of compliance officers we spoke with suggested they rely on is the draft information. How heavily laden is the vessel? And as we were doing our research, we found that that number is manually entered. There isn't like a scale on the ship. Somebody at the end of an 18 hour shift runs to the four corners of the vessel, drops measuring tape down to the water writes it down, and then has to go up into the top of the ship and write it out. And so in the best of times, that information may or may not be correct, but it's easily manipulated if a bad actor wanted to. So I think some of the banks that relied upon that learned very quickly that in and of itself isn't necessarily going to help you
0: other types of information that can be broadcast over AIS? And how confident are you that these could be incorporated into a sanctions compliance program? Because by the sounds of it, some parts uh, involve manual data entry like those measurements. So the data probably can't be that correct, right? It could be manipulated.
2: So one of the things, and I'll tell you, when we first went into this, we were all slightly biased by the idea that having instant real-world location would be the most effective way to determine whether or not something was violating a sanction. And what we learned, it's absolutely useful, but the historical record of that vessel's travel is perhaps even more useful. If you check a vessel right this second and it's off, that may or may not mean anything. It isn't as though we have constant, truly up to the second information. Depends on a number of things, like uh, one of the hardest places to get truly accurate data is right off of um, the Port of Fujara, right in the uh, off the UAE there. And between the land, the various countries around, and just how busy it is, there aren't enough land-based antennas to have absolute tracking of every single vessel. In many instances, if you can't get a ping back from a particular vessel's AIS for 24 hours or less, it's probably not that risky. The problem is, if you look at a map, you could see that it's uh, less than a day's voyage over to uh, one of the ports in Iran, Bender Abbas, I believe it's called. And uh, that's plenty of time for a bad actor to disable their AS. Cruise on over, drop off some goods, collect some money, and uh, go right back over to uh, Fujara and uh, turn it back on, and ask somebody to prove they weren't sitting right there the whole time. That didn't necessarily involve any manipulation; it was just a simple turning it off and making the run. But if you look at the history of that ship, you might find that they've done that several times in in several different areas, or they might have a habit of of just disappearing for a few days here and there. And when you compare that with sanctioned countries and understanding of how long it takes a vessel just like that to move to go to this port or that port, you can combine that information have an incredibly effective vessel sanctions tracking program by knowing this one does this and this, but it also disappears for a few days here and there. You should probably avoid it or find out why it's doing that. It was really informing for us to learn that up to the minute information is great, but really knowing their historical data is probably even better. And I think that probably applies in a number of areas beyond shipping, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, talking of that, Saskia, I guess moving from underpinning trade is, is trade finance. And what can the banks do about this? And what are those recent OFAC and offsea shipping guidance?
1: Yeah, so these two advisories, they were, a, I think, a vital step in knowing what the compliance expectations are from a U.S. and U.K. government agencies. So in May 2020, we had the OFAC, Department of State and U.S. Coast Guard advisory for the maritime industry. This advisory gave recommendations to not only financial institutions, but also commodity traders, flag states, port authorities and others with an emphasis on a monitoring of the AIS transmission outages as a practice used to evade sanctions. The UK uh, Sanctions Office, the uh, UK OFSI, also released the guidance in the same year, later that same year in December, covering uh, similar topics. Because of these papers, uh, they're not laws, they're not regulations. They elevated the regulatory expectations and underscored the importance of due diligence and monitoring right across the financial and the maritime ecosystem. And uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the guidance is that efforts should be made to mitigate or to detect or to curtain sanctions evasions practices. And these guidance papers laid these expectations on these industries to monitor for tampering with AIS. So that was an important point that was mentioned in both papers. And that is not easy because, you know, AIS, if you read the paper and Michael explained it, has strengths, it also has weaknesses in terms of compliance. Companies that try to comply with what is now expected, they need to know the ins and outs of of this system to be able to understand it and also to know exactly where the risks are. So that is in most banks right now, they use a so-called risk-based approach when they design their sanctions compliance program. But it's not an easy approach. And in order to assess the risk, you need to know exactly what the risks are. And these advisories did not provide detailed practical advice on these risk factors. So that's what we're trying to cover in this paper to explain it better so you can assess your risk better, which is really the first step of of building this sanctions compliance program for your maritime sector clients.
0: Thanks, Saskia. And we'll go into that in a little bit more detail in just a second. But would you say there is a disconnect between those regulations and regulators, between the advice given to banks and FIs and the advice given to the shipping industry?
1: There's not so much a disconnect. A lot of the banks, of course, are more mature in their sanctions compliance effort than the maritime shipping companies. Of course, there are exceptions, right? You have major maritime shipping companies that have very robust and sound programs in place. But the banks, of course, are regulated. So they have these regulators, whether it be the Federal Reserve or their local central bank. They have them examining, as they call it, their sanctions compliance programs and their AML, anti-money laundering compliance programs, on a yearly basis. So in general, they have more robust programs in place. When we talk to smaller companies, they often look at their bank or their insurance company to sort of catch the possible sanctions issue. And it shouldn't be like that. They should have their own programs in place. So I think it's a matter of time with all these advisories and of course, enforcement actions that have been imposed on the non-banks, that the non-banking sector will also come on board and have more robust sanctions compliance programs that can help them avoid engaging in prohibited transactions.
0: Thanks, Askia. Going back to your white paper, so you spoke to a number of banks and FIs to discuss some of these issues at a high level. What were the key findings and what are they saying?
1: There's a lot of information on what banks do. Of course, most of the banks, and and this also, you know, was came clear after our interviews, they conduct a risk assessment, right? So they assess the risk at a general level for sanctions and financial crimes. And uh, interestingly, is that, you know, the I think one of the banks, it was that they they see the risk of the maritime sector as all high risk. So whether you are a large maritime shipping company or a small independently owned shipping company, they all consider you high risk. Now, what does that mean in a practical way? That means that uh, your due diligence for these clients is more robust than a lower risk client. So there will be more questions asked, there so will be closely monitoring their transactions. And in my opinion, that wouldn't work very well in the long run because there are, of course, differences in these companies depending on the size and the problems they have in place. So that was one of them we found. And there were also some, you know, it turned out that there are several challenges as well. For instance, um, one bank said that buy-in from senior leadership is available, but funding for tools like software to track vessels and to help meet these expectations from OFAC and other agencies is difficult to achieve. Uh, sometimes they'll send them, oh, you can just rely on free tools or the expertise of the trade operations staff with many years of experience to comply with these issues. Pulling down those four dollars or pounds for the... budget is sometimes a challenge. And another thing, what was mentioned that when these advisories came out, uh, many banks started doing sort of like a gap analysis on reviewing these advisories to see if they're, you know, they're complying with everything that's being done. One of the banks that we interviewed said, one of the smaller banks, he said, well, yeah, we found gaps, but nothing was being done. The risk is there and we know it's there, but there was just no budget for us to um, improve our program. Yeah, there are some challenges, but I think a lot of the institutions are still in the process of doing this gap analysis and hopefully things will be proving down the road when the money is there.
0: Thanks, Saskian. And there were some really interesting challenges around, you know, putting everything in the same risk bucket and also that buy-in from the senior leadership team, even they know that there is a problem, but nothing's necessarily being done. Michael, from these interviews, what were the key recommendations that you made in the white paper?
2: The interviews were really eye opening in a lot of ways, and in some ways, you know, maybe not so much. But what we tried to do in the paper is any bank of any size can improve what they're currently doing. The first, and in many ways, even as we learned, the most important thing we could do was to make sure that we were educated and to educate our readers that what exactly AIS is, how it works, all the stuff we covered earlier and more, certainly all the educational components covered in the white paper, you'd think that this is really out there and this is understood, and it isn't necessarily. A couple of banks we spoke with, one of them in particular had a, uh, a retired... Uh, naval officer. So they were very up to speed in terms of what does all of this mean? So when they were building out their system, they had uh, in-house expertise. But a number of the other banks we spoke with really didn't know. And again, we didn't know when we started this process. So uh, I think the first really big takeaway is it's important for you to sit down with not just your sanctions people, not just your compliance and risk people, but your trade people, your dock checkers, your salespeople, your customer uh, relations people, and make sure that they understand what's going on and what all this means so if they happen to be running into something that has a, could potentially in the future be a bit of a flag, it's important that they make a note of it and that they let others, either the compliance base or their managers, or they put it in the file to make sure that it's in there. You know, No longer are the frontline people, and the doc checkers in particular, independent from the transaction anymore. You really got to be aware of everything that's going on. The second one is once you understand this, your bank has got to figure out what its risk appetite is, and it's going to vary by size. And I think we found that as we talked to people, when you are a top 10. And global bank, you aren't going to just walk away from a whole region just because there's a potential of risk. You've got to determine what you're going to do to mitigate that. You might be a very small bank that doesn't really finance transactions that have the potential to be near a risky area. And maybe what you need to do is not too much. A couple more review and revise your KYC. You certainly should be aware of the tools that are out there, free or paid, to know what vessels are doing and what they have done. And then that really, in a way, leads into the third key, at least from my perspective, which is that there are solutions. And if you are, I don't want to use the bank's names, but if you're one of the big banks, you've got all the money in the world to spend to fix this and make sure that you are complying. But when you're a small bank, you don't. And as Saskia mentioned, one of the banks we spoke with really they had a tight budget. They knew where some of the gaps were. They didn't have the approval to do it. So they were missing board level buy-in and budget assigned to really make a difference then. What we found in researching different technology solutions is there is a version for everybody. You know, you may main- not have the budget to pay for a super advanced you know, vessel tracking system, but there's plenty of free ones. The data transmitted by AS IS, is free. There's a number of free resources that track both the current and the historical data. And you can just go in, put in the vessel's IMO number or name, find it and just see what it's done. You, know, you may not have the budget for the technology, but if you've got staff, you can do it. You may not be as simple, it may not be fully integrated into your back-end trade system, but you can do it. Those are the three. You know, making sure that your staff, your team are educated. Um, making sure you review where your risk appetite is, and that you have reviewed and are implementing the tools to help make sure that you match your your appetite with what you what are available. I think those are the big recommendations.
0: Sounds really tangible there. Education and understanding that cross-collaboration and bigger picture and how all the different individual pieces work, understanding the risk appetite and and what that means for the bank, and then actually implementing the right solutions where possible. Saskia, how can banks really implement those recommendations in, in a more practical way that is also not a huge burden on the current trade operations that exist and what really are the biggest challenges?
1: One of the challenges is I think that the bad guys are always one step ahead. People on the sanctions list like corrupt government officials, um, narco traffickers, oligarchs, you know, weapons of mass destruction proliferators, they will go to great lengths to stay under the radar and to stay undetected. And they can afford the best people, the best advisors to set up uh, sophisticated, and complex networks to go about their schemes. And the challenge is sometimes that compliance people uh, who are tasked with investigating these schemes, you know, looking at vessels or it's a challenge. It's like trying to seek for a, a needle in a stack of hay. It's like peeling an onion, right? Layer after layer of, you know, sometimes you see these complex shell, complex corporate networks with shell corporations. I mean, I've seen visual representations of links between entities and vessels and companies that were the size of a tablecloth. It all takes time, and, and often the compliance people are being pressured by the business to approve a transaction, but connecting all these dots take time. So I think that remains a challenge for compliance folks, regardless if they're working on a maritime, investigating a potential sanctions evasion in the maritime space or other types of unusual activities. That remains a challenge.
0: Thank you very much. And incredibly interesting there. And just going into a bit more detail on how complex some of these operations can be. So I guess just to close off on this very fascinating podcast, if you had one piece of advice to someone listening, whether they be on the shipping side or on the trade finance side, what would it be when it comes to understanding and digesting some of the take home from this white paper that you guys published? Michael, over to you to start.
2: I would stick with the education part. I think it's really important to understand exactly what these means, not just that i able to parrot a few words, but really what it means and how it applies to your bank. And I'll give you a really funny quick joke. As we were learning exactly how a ship-to-ship transfer works, the ship transfer master has the vessels pull up to a certain spot. They have the either a mobile crane or a water-based crane pull in between them to begin the transfer. I had to ask, does North Korea have like an evil ship transfer master and like an evil captain that does that, you know? And the thing is they do. I mean, they're not evil. They're just people doing their job, but they know all this stuff. And you need to know it too. I think it's really important for our listeners and all the financial institutions to understand this is happening right now. It will be a problem for you if you aren't aware. At some point, you will get reviewed by OFAC on this if you and if you aren't trying to implement or implementing uh solutions, you
0: will be in trouble.
2: It's now going on almost 2 years since this came out. So,
0: I would say Learn it
2: and figure out what to do
0: with it. Thanks, Michael. And Saskia, what's your piece of advice?
1: One thing that I would highlight is that if there's one takeaway from this paper is that just turning off the AIS in and of itself uh, may not represent a red flag for sanctions evasion, but you have to look at the bigger picture. You have to look at a combination of indicators. There are several cases in the paper that provide examples of how the bad guys operate. And I think it's very good to take a closer look at that. You see that it's often a combination of red flags that you can see in these cases. So, for instance, there was a I think it was a Singapore individual. He was charged for conspiring to evade economic sanctions, and he had tankers. They were involved in illicit deliveries of petroleum. There was a to ship transfer, but there were also many other red flags. Like, he used front companies. He disguised the location information for his vessels and more. You know, like I said, a single indicator, like a turning off an AIS, is not always a red red flag in and of itself. But look at the combination of these indicators. And that should be viewed as as a heightened sanctioned risk.
0: Thank you very much. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. What a fascinating insight. And to our readers and listeners, read the white paper. Saskia Reetbrook, Michael Byrne, it's been such a pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talks, discussing ships, sanctions, and suspicious vessels. See you next time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance
0: Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.